Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Lynchburg, Virginia. Welcome to the show, Paul Moore. Hey, great to be here, Victor. Great to have you here. Great to have you back on the show. It's been a while. And love for those who haven't met you up to now, maybe give a few minutes of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey. Yeah. Um, well, I had my own company in Detroit and sold it 25 years ago uh, to a public firm. And I thought, you know, hey, I'm a full-time investor now. And I was only 33, 34 years old at, the, at that point. And I, I just I didn't know the difference between investing and speculating. I think I was more of a full-time speculator, not an investor. And I lost a lot of money and I made a lot of money too. But I, you know, as I got older and in my forties and fifties, I hated the idea of losing money. And when we started working with other investors, I really hated it. Um, went from flipping a whole bunch of residential properties, resident, you know, waterfront lots at a resort in Virginia, did a small subdivision, built seven or eight houses. And all that time, I was trying to figure out how to get involved in commercial real estate. And I wasn't sure where the on-ramp was. And we finally found that we built a multifamily quasi-hotel in the Bakken region of North Dakota during the oil boom about 11 years ago. And we operated that for a number of years. I ended up staying in multifamily until we couldn't find any more deals. I had written a book called The Perfect Investment, which you and I talked about on here years ago. But I came to the conclusion that for my company, at least, multifamily wasn't perfect because we felt like we had to overpay for deals to outbid a lot of people who were I thought overpaying. Now, a lot of those people have made millions since now. And, uh, but we decided to expand into other types of assets that we felt were more recession resistant. And uh, some of those include self storage, mobile home parks, RV parks. Um, we, have, we did our first fund a number of years ago, and now we just launched our sixth diversified fund to invest in six different asset classes. Amazing. We really agree with your perspective that things have been bid up in price. They've been bid out of sight. And I know it's been very unpopular. We've been very unpopular the last couple of years where we've been saying, oh, I would never pay that much. And fast forward to today, and all of a sudden we look like geniuses. And we're not. We were just being a little bit consistent in our underwriting approach and not getting caught up in the fever. But we also recognized that at that auction mentality that was taking place, we could in fact build and develop for a fraction of what things were selling for in the open market. And so that really caused us to pivot into development and we haven't looked back. So uh, definitely resonate with that with that point of view. Now, one of the things that you're doing that's a little different from us, we've been focused primarily on syndicating projects on a deal by deal basis. And mm -hmm. the fund model has a lot of advantages. It has some drawbacks as well. Mm -hmm. What what steered you to the fund model as opposed to simply investing in individual projects? Yeah. So we had a couple projects years ago that, you know, that didn't do anywhere near as well as we thought. Even in a great economy, one of them just, you know, was pretty mediocre to say the least. And that was a multifamily deal. And then later we had a self storage deal that, you know, had projected five or six or 7% cash flow. 
And right when we acquired it in, um, you know, like 2018, two national competitors popped up nearby. And everybody in the self-storage business knows that that is the riskiest thing about self-storage. And that is, you know, a big national competitor who can undercut you showing up down the street or, you know, within a mile or two. And that's exactly what happened. That project, because the economy has boomed so much, fast forwarding four years, um, it sold for a very, very nice profit. But the cash flow along the way for most of the four years was awful. So we got to thinking after those going back, you know, to 2016, 17, 18, after a few of those projects that weren't great, we thought, you know, what if these were part of a fund? And of course, the funny thing you could say would be, well, then you'd have a terrible fund with just, but no, seriously, we, we, we thought, well, what if these were part of a fund where there were all kinds of different asset classes, different geographies, different operators, and many different property managers, and different strategies, and of course, lots of different properties. And so we thought that that would be a good way forward for us, especially since we truly believe you cannot be an expert in all kinds of different things. I mean, think about it. If Michael Phelps would have tried to win 28 medals when he was a kid, he could have thought, okay, I'll do javelin and I'll do shot put and I'll do long jump and high jump and row and all these things. Instead, he was smart. He stuck to one thing, the swimming pool, and he did it really well. And he won 28 medals over five Olympiads. Well, we didn't, we thought we really wanted the diversification, but I knew Victor, I knew that I couldn't and we couldn't, our little team couldn't be great in four, five, six different asset classes. So we decided to go with the model of a fund where we operate in the very best operators we can find, excuse me, where we invest with the very best operators we can find and let each of them be the expert, if you will, like Michael Phelps. That makes an awful lot of sense. Now, of course, one of the advantages of the fund model is that you have the funds sitting at your disposal, you've raised the money, you can deploy quickly, and you can often beat the competition with a much stronger offer if it is a competitive environment. You develop a reputation of closing and moving quickly and all of those advantages. Let's talk about the flip side, yeah. which is you when you raise a fund, there's an expectation of delivering a rate of return. Right. So let's say you've raised a fund, maybe let's say you raised a fund that's too large and you can't deploy it all, how do you resist the pressure to deploy simply so the money's not earning zero? Yeah, so we saw that and we really hated that and that caused us to really pause. We see that as a big disadvantage. So we have a policy at Wellings Capital that we only raise money for stuff that's right in front of us. Now, what that does is that creates another disadvantage, which like you said earlier, hey, you have the cash ready to go and you can move quicker. Well, we can't move more, you know, quicker if we don't have the cash, but we just feel like the conservative route is to never have all, you know, we don't want all that pressure on us to make quick decisions or to, you know, rush into deals that are less than perfect or with operators that are less than fully vetted. So we've decided to take that tactic. And so that's that's what we do. We only raise money when we have a deal in front of us. 
Okay, that makes sense. So in today's environment, of course, a lot has changed in the last 90 to 120 days and investors like one thing apart from a high rate of return, they like certainty. And that's probably one of the one thing that no fund manager or probably no developer or syndicator can promise is any form of certainty in today's environment, because so much has changed so quickly. How do you talk investors off the ledge? um, Or do you so that you have a sensible response for how to handle today's environment? Yeah, so we're getting questions from investors about, you know, inflation and the impact of inflation on real estate values and the real estate model. But more so, more more recently, of course, we're getting questions about interest rates. And, you know, you and I were talking offline before when there's a lot of upside, I mean, a significant margin of safety and upside in your project, you can deal with an increase in interest rates. So we're going generally, Victor, after really steep value adds. Deals that have been significantly undermanaged, poorly operated, or just leave a whole lot of value add that's not been tapped. We're talking about mom and pop operators who are doing really well, but they don't have the desire or the resources or the knowledge to make all the upgrades they could make to reach, to have the asset reach its potential, to increase cash flow and significantly increase the equity in the deal. And so by acquiring one of these and paying a very fair full price to this local you know this local operator we can often see increases of 30 to even 50% in cash flow and therefore uh you know up to 100% increase in equity in sometimes under a year uh, and again, it's a, a lot of these folks, they're good people, but they're just leaving tremendous opportunity on the table. We've seen self-storage facilities that have no marketing, no website. We saw a self-storage facility where the um, the um, tenants have to bring cash or a check every month and bring it to the office, reminding them every month, of course, that they've got a storage facility and they probably should just go unload it. But I mean, we, we've seen storage facilities and mobile home parks where rents are 30% or worse below market. We've seen, I mean, a lot of the mobile home parks, for example, they can't afford to put a new mobile home on a vacant lot. And so over years, there's a lot of in, an increased number of vacant lots and they can't really do that much about it. But a great operator can go in with capital and put, you know, maybe fill up. 50 vacant lots over three years, significantly increasing the value of the property. And that's the answer to your question. I love it. That makes an awful lot of sense. And when you look at the environment today, we've gone through a very heated set of market conditions over the last couple of years. If an asset came on the market, chances are it was an auction and it would probably sell above its real intrinsic value. So I would imagine just about everything that's crossing your desk is off market. That's the only way you can accomplish that. Yeah, our operators typically have a team of people who are scouring, you know, either email, text, phone, GIS, even, you know, on the, on the ground looking for assets uh, to invest in. And they're almost always off-market deals. Absolutely. Well, Paul, love the perspective. If folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? 
Yeah. Like I said, I wasn't sure how to get into commercial real estate. So I put together a little guide to allow people to understand some different on-ramps and that's available at Wellings Capital. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, wellingscapital.com slash resources. And you can get a guide on self-storage, another one on mobile home park investing. And like I said, the one on commercial real estate on-ramps. Well, great to catch up with you, Paul. And for the listeners at home, definitely connect with Paul at wellingscapital.com and check out his downloads at wellingscapital.com slash resources. And the link will be in the show notes. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.